Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. So I would like for you to see yourself in a few situations, conversations in particular. First off, you're talking to a friend of yours, and you're, ta- you're telling them about a relative. You keep the names out for um, propriety, but uh, telling them about a relative of yours who's been married for decades and decades. And they're gradually beginning to, uh, this is a husband, and he's gradually beginning to understand that he's in a terrible position. They're getting, both of them are getting fairly aged at this point. Their children are out of the house. Um, and he's getting into retirement years. But he's begun to notice that pretty much everything about the household, the shows that him and his wife watch, the way the house is situated and decorated, even the daily plans, are pretty much entirely dictated by the wife. And some of her tendencies and some of her weaknesses come from uh, most likely deep pains from her past and uh, so on and so forth. But the, the crux of the matter is that he's come to a point where he absolutely loathes his life. A good portion of that comes from his wife, but he also doesn't want to bring up any of this directly to his wife. And he shared the fact of all of these things with you, And as you relay these things to your friend, he just can't understand why on earth this this relative of yours wouldn't just talk to his wife about it. Now, let's bring up another situation. Let's say that you're talking to a girl, a woman, and she uh, has just suffered a broken bone. Nothing necessarily serious, just perhaps in the hand or in the arm or something like that. Got to wear a cast for a while. It'll heal just fine. But she's still bawling her eyes out because she's now found herself in a situation where essentially everything has suddenly become much more difficult. And she has a good deal of responsibilities and she's just uh, crying as a result of the, the weight of all of these situations that she now has to deal with. And you being a guy, well, if you're a man, you might listen to this and Simply go, why Why are you so emotional about this? Yes, it's going to be challenging, sure, but why would that make you sad? A third situation. Let's say that, again, you're talking to a friend of yours. This could be male or female. And you're mentioning somebody who you are familiar with who has uh, become desperately corrupt. They're perhaps uh, have a taste for some very terrible fetishes. Or maybe they have gotten deep into cheating other people. Perhaps they cheat somehow with their money. Uh, Perhaps they have taken to manipulations and try to dominate other people rather than having good relationships with them. And you've tried to talk to this person and help them in their situation. And 
they absolutely refuse not even not only to change what they're doing, but even to acknowledge that anything that they're doing is wrong at all. And you talk to your friend, and your friend is absolutely bewildered that they would fail to even acknowledge that what they're doing is, uh, well, even very much exists, nor even that it's wrong, nor would they be willing to change. Like, shouldn't don't they have a conscience? Can't they possibly see that this is a problem? Especially if this, this uh, person you're talking to is a Christian, uh, they might be absolutely flabbergasted. Now, what is the commonality in all three of these situations? Well, the commonality is a failure of empathy. See, we grow up, pretty much all of us, I, I know that myself and pretty much everybody that I know that's close to my age, grew up with parents who gave them this one particular line. I think I mentioned it before. Well, wouldn't you like it if you were in this other person's shoes? Or you should put yourself into the other person's shoes. You should see what it's like in their situation. That kind of thing. And I think it's a very good line. The only problem is that it seems as if nobody does it, particularly those who say that. See, sometimes the um, the married person in the earlier example that I was talking about, you're talking about this with your own father. And he just doesn't get it. He being the one who told you to, under, to uh, get into the other person's shoes and see what it's like. But he himself, when presented with the issue, doesn't seem to understand it at all. Doesn't seem to see the difficulty. Now maybe you listening to me doesn't see the difficulties in these situations either. Why would the woman be crying over a broken bone simply because it's going to make things more difficult for a while? Why would somebody who's corrupt not see their corruption, not have a conscience? Why would a man who's married and experience a life that experiencing a life that he absolutely loathes wouldn't just bring it up with his wife? Why, why, why? You're either in one camp or the other, most likely. You can at least see some of the difficulties in the, these situations, or you're absolutely flabbergasted and don't get it. If you're in the latter, I don't consider you hopeless, but I do think that you have failed the test of empathy. Why? Again, going back to the advice that we always get. What would you, how would you like it if you were in their shoes? That kind of thing. What does it really take to do that? What it really takes to begin to introduce us to this concept is feeling rather than thinking. One of the issues that we deal with, particularly among Christians, is that we think we understand human nature. We think we understand the conscience. We think we understand what people are tempted by. What's the problem, at least related to empathy, that we're thinking? What it really takes to have empathy is, yes, to put yourself into the other person's shoes, but to put the, yourself into their shoes in a very specific way. There are two things that keep us back from having genuine empathy. What are those two things? They are corruption and pride. 
Now, how does that keep us back from empathy? Well, actually, one of the earlier examples can help illuminate this. What is the real issue of the corrupt person that they won't even acknowledge that what they're doing is wrong or sometimes even exists? Oh, no, I'm not really manipulating people. No, 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 they just don't get it. They don't understand that my way is better and what they need to do is what I think they should do, and I'm just trying to help them to take the right path. Or, no, 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 I'm not cheating anyone out of their money. They're freely accepting the deals that I offer them. It's a free-willed thing. Those sorts of excuses might be coming out whenever you're trying to engage with the person stuck, stuck in their corruption. But what really lies behind them completely refusing to acknowledge anything? Well, if you don't just look at them raw in the moment where they're at making their excuses, you might stop to think about where their background is, where they have been, and what process of life and action and actions and decisions have led them to the point that they are in right now. And where they are right now is more than just cheating or manipulating or whatever it might be. They have, for the course of probably years and years and years, have chosen continuously to accept a particular kind of lifestyle. In order to have that kind of lifestyle, they can't just live in a particular way, they also have to choose who they associate with. And who they associate with cannot be the kind of people who would see the lifestyle they're living and critique it. Because otherwise they couldn't go on living that lifestyle and justifying themselves in it. So they choose the kind of people who have maybe the same kinds of disgusting fetishes, or maybe appreciate the same kinds of cheating or manipulating or something like that. Either those who are in on the game, or those who will allow themselves to be manipulated by their manipulations. In other words, they haven't just developed a certain lifestyle, they've developed a certain reputation. And, furthermore, they have to be around people who themselves do not empathize, but we'll get more into that later. So in order for them to have that kind of lifestyle, they have to be deeply rooted in that lifestyle. Otherwise, they couldn't fool themselves into thinking that it's okay. They have to be liked by people who will not criticize or judge them for how they live. If they abuse others, if they beat on their children, or something like that, they have to be around people who, who for one reason or another, are never going to call them out on it. So then you come along and start calling them out on it, and what do they do? Well, they're going through, either viscerally or maybe in some degree intellectually, everything that they would have to sacrifice in order to acknowledge the claim that you are placing upon them. Not upon them specifically, but upon their conscience, upon their record, upon their actions and choices. In order for them to be able to step back and acknowledge that anything that they're doing is actually wrong and beginning to live with real integrity, they don't just have to give up what they have done. They might have to give up their parents. If they're still in their lives, that means that they approve of it to some extent, or at least don't call them out on it. 
which essentially is a sort of being an accomplice. They might have to give up their friendships. They might have to give up their job. They might have to give up their marriage. Why? Because anybody who does not call them out on it is to some extent benefiting by the lifestyle that this corrupt person is living. Otherwise, why would they still be in that lifestyle? Now, I'm not saying that the people around them might not hate it. But if you understand how people actually live in the real world, nobody remains around a toxic person unless they're getting something that they want. Something that they may even feel that they need. And therefore, for you to turn around, if you're the corrupt person, and for you to turn around and begin to admit the truth, they, whoever they are, whether they're your victim or your benefactor or whatever, are going to recoil at the fact that suddenly you're changing your entire game. See, even the people who are your victims are staying there because they're remaining in their comfort zone. But I'm going a little bit too far into the weeds. I'm just trying to prove the point that in order for a person to abandon a corrupt lifestyle, they have to give up what essentially to them might appear to be or be their entire lives. One of the teachers that I follow has said that pretty much every person on the face of the earth is 20 minutes from annihilation. What does he mean by that? If they are actually confronted with their guilt and have to look at the prospect of giving it all up, the natural reaction, the very understandable reaction is complete freak out. Why? Because they would essentially have to annihilate themselves in order to do it. The problem that so many morally minded people have when looking at the corrupt is that they do not understand that it's not just an absence of conscience. It's the continuous weekly, monthly, and yearly denial of conscience and the gathering around of people who will not call them out on their bad conscience. To give it up is a cost that is like trying to dig up an entire mountain all at once, or perhaps to be flattened by it. What do we have to do to understand the plight of the corrupt? Now take, similarly, the man who is in a marriage that he now finds has produced a life that he absolutely loathes. What would he have to do? Or sorry, what would he have to face in order to actually bring it up with his wife? Well, obviously a possible divorce, right? Because if this has gone on for years and years and years, and perhaps went unnoticed or at least not fully acknowledged for a while because the children were still at home, but now has become this deeply rooted agony for him. Well, yes, that's true, and he very well does want to get rid of all of that, but what would he have to face if he actually brought it up with her? Again, the fact that it's been so deeply rooted means that he's going to up, appall, uproot, completely turn to chaos, at least in her perception, everything that she thinks is normal life. 
everything that she thought you were that he was perfectly okay with and so on and so forth it has a very high probability in the long run to detonate the marriage but that's not all for the marriage to be detonated and to end in divorce is going to call up issues with your children with his children it's going to call up issues possibly with your church it's definitely going to call up issues with your group of friends and her groups of friends. How many things it could cost him is again like trying to dig up an entire mountain all at once. So this, once again, as I started out, is why corruption is a barrier to empathy. Why is corruption a barrier to empathy? Because in order to maintain corruption in our own lives or around us, we have to separate ourselves from ourselves. We have to continue to ignore the fact that we have a guilty conscience. We have to continue to turn away from the fact that we hate our lives. We have to turn our faces against the fact that we have no real relationships. We have to turn ourselves away from humanity, specifically the humanity of our own hearts. How is it that we'll be, we could be able to possibly reach into the hearts and emotions of other people, which pretty much everybody understands, at least on a basic level, is what empathy means. But I'll get more into that as well later. How could we possibly be able to do that if we have turned away from our own hearts, from our own concepts of conscience, or anything like that. Now, why is it that pride keeps us from empathy? Well, that goes into the illustration of the woman. A woman with a broken bone looks upon the next few months of having a great deal of difficulty maintaining her lifestyle. Maybe she has a couple kids and a husband, and she is a very good housekeeper, or maybe she does a part-time or even a full-time job, and she's absolutely devastated. Is she the kind of woman who has absolutely has the capacity to pull through anyway? Sure. Yeah. There's plenty of women like that. But nevertheless, she hurts deeply because of this. Why would another person, male or female, uh, balk at that, scoff at that? consider her to be weak. Is it because she's actually weak? Nope. What she is doing, what she is feeling, is the same kind of thing that all of us, no matter who we are, have at one point felt when we were children. And what is that feeling? That feeling is helplessness. That feeling is the feeling of being trapped. That feeling is like looking at a massive hike ahead of you that's not just steep and difficult, but so steep that you don't even know if you're going to be able to climb up without injury. I've been on some of these hikes. I live in Colorado, for heaven's sakes. There's some hikes where it gets so steep that uh, previous hikers have set up ropes so that you can pull yourself up. You can't climb like you're climbing up a rock. That would be easy enough. 
Uh, you're dealing with granite. You're dealing with dirt. You're dealing with all kinds of things that are far too slippery. So you're looking up at this rope and you don't even know if you can make it okay. If you didn't have the rope, it would be an almost certain injury, if not worse. You look up at that or something similar to that, any, what, any kind of challenge that you can imagine looking at and wondering if you can actually do it. And you feel beyond your depth. You feel overwhelmed. Now, yes, deep down you might have the knowledge to some extent that you will be able to do it in the end. But it still feels devastating. And yeah, for those of us, particularly men, and some women as well, if we become adults, we might not actually break out in tears about that sort of thing. But not a single one of us has been a child without crying because of that at some point. And the fact that women retain that, by the way, is one of the things I consider the most beautiful about women in general. It's called neoteny, keeping some of the attributes of childhood. Men and women both have some. Women might have a few more, but that actually is good. Not only does it give them a, ten a certain tenderness that is invaluable to being human, it also gives them the capacity to empathize with children. One of the reasons, probably, why traditional values holds women as the uh, as the homemakers and the child rearers. Anyway, but to get back to the main point, why is it that we would balk and scoff at a woman crying about such a thing, again, about the broken bone? Because we are refusing to remember that we have been there. Why would we refuse to admit that we have been there because of pride. Not only that, we're refusing to admit the fact that we could be there. Give a man or another, a more stoic woman, a much greater challenge. And we ourselves may be not just crying or even yelling, but screaming in terror. Why? Because it's actually something that we can't handle? No, because we're completely overwhelmed. We can't, at the moment, emotionally absorb the situation without crying out. And we, refusing to see ourselves in that situation, or maybe partially seeing it, would consider it humiliating. We would consider it shameful. And so we're looking at this woman crying over a broken, a broken bone, which, you know, is not a small thing, but neither is it the end of the world if it's set and casted and it'll heal just fine. We're looking at her and feeling the shame that we would have if we were in the same situation, perhaps. And so once again, pride keeps us from seeing her where she's at and actually listening to her, understanding where she's at. So going back to the simple question of what really is it? To have empathy, which I haven't fully asked, I know, in this episode as yet, but it's been looming this entire time. What does it mean to have empathy? What it means to have empathy is to put yourself, as again, the phrase goes, in the other person's shoes and feel. 
Not don't think. Not theorizing. Not thinking to understand. But feeling. If you could put yourself into the position of helplessness, whatever it would take for you to feel that. And by the way, that too is misleading. Why? Because if you start imagining what it would take for you to feel that way, you're missing it. Empathy is visceral. Empathy is the capacity, or comes from the capacity to think a thousand miles an hour. I can't remember the pace. It always seems to be a different number. But the subconscious mind is several thousand times faster than the conscious mind. Empathy is subconscious, but we can wield it. We can wield it to a degree consciously, but we can't think it. We have to feel it. If you can put yourself into the shoes of the corrupt, you can actually feel where they're coming from. Here's another area where pride keeps us away, since I've just talked about empathizing with the corrupt. Many Christians think that they are above the kinds of corruptions that we see around us. We think that we are above the rapist. We think that we are above the cheater. We think that we are above perhaps the divorcee, etc., etc. We think we're above the bully. This, to me, is a deep kind of pride. In my opinion, to be human is to be capable of every kind of glory and every kind of corruption. The deepest sort of wickedness and sin and the most glorious sort of righteousness and gloriousness, by which I mean in our behavior. So the fact of the matter is, if we are going to be genuine and honest about ourselves, however clean our records may be, we are still capable of the worst kinds of things. Now, I don't mean to suggest that we should actually go on and Consider the possibility, consider where we would have to be in life in order to be a rapist, in order to be a cheater, in order to be a manipulator if you're not. That's not the point. The point is to acknowledge that there is nothing fundamentally making you so much better as a human, or a, or a greater human, a more human, if you will, that you couldn't possibly be in the shoes of the other person. All of us have dark impulses, even if we don't act on them. All of us have had some of the greatest temptations, even if we consider them only for a moment before casting them aside as ugly. We understand what it could be to give in. And if we're willing to acknowledge that, it doesn't mean that we condone cor the corruption of the corrupt. It means that we don't stand on our high horses and scoff at the corruption of the world. Now, one other warning that I wanted to issue. Some people will talk about empathy, and they will give you one indication of risk. I've done this in the, in the past myself. 
they will tell you that in order to empathize, you have to be vulnerable. And that's true. But the warning goes a little bit further than that. You have to open yourself up to bad things or to bad people or to bad impulses or to something like that. People think, some people think that in order to be vulnerable, you have to open yourself up to abuse. Now, personally, I consider this to be abuse and a trap. It is absolutely true that in order to truly be vulnerable, you have to open up at least the capacity to be hurt by bad people. Yeah, there's a very simple solution to that. You get bad people out of your life. You separate the wheat from the chaff. You don't keep bad people in your environment. If you do have people in your environment and they choose to try to hurt you, well, you just don't let that happen. You don't allow them to continue in your life if they continue to choose to hurt you, or at least try to if they do not repent and change how they're behaving with you. If anybody is telling you that in order to be empathetic, you have to submit yourself to abuse, they're doing one of two things. They're showing the fact that they themselves have never experienced being vulnerable and not being hurt. Or they themselves are those who would hurt others and are trying to expose you to their manipulations and their abuse. The simple solution to opening yourself to vulnerability is to get bad people out of your life. And by the way, from my own experience, I would say that yes, it is absolutely worth it to do both. So again, in order to empathize, it is not enough just to see ourselves in the other person's shoes. We have to experience where they are right now. And not think, but feel. To think is to fail to understand. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we can get the sort of two-faced Christians or politicians or what have you who, when they're at church and when they're in polite company, seem to understand a great deal. They can talk about conscience, they can talk about good and evil, they can talk about a number of things, because intellectually they understand it. But they have no capacity to empathize. So at home, they might beat their wife, they might abuse their children, they might do any number of things. And they don't seem to care. Why? Because if you have boiled down what it is to be human to the level of simply understanding things and putting on good appearances, and you fear the entire world of empathy, lest you acknowledge your own guilty conscience, then how easy is it to get by on li in life with just appearances and care nothing for the people closest to you? In fact, if you started to care about them, you would again open yourself up to seeing and to being seen. To understand your own corruption and to allow the people around you to begin to see, truly, the wickedness of your ways. 
A lack of empathy is, in my opinion, a lack of humanity. But we can go far deeper than a lot of people think. To empathize is not only to be able to experience things with other people, but in order to do so, more often than, or very, very often, you have to see yourself in all kinds of situations. To empathize with the woman crying over the broken bone, you have to remember what it was like to be a child, or you have to remember what it was like, or what it can be like, what it is like to be helpless. In order to see the corrupt, you have to understand what it's like to be deeply ingrained in a particular kind of habit and environment and social circle. In order to empathize with the person who is questioning his entire life and his marriage, you have to see what it would be like for yourself to have gone on that long in that kind of a situation. To be able to empathize with it on this level, you can even see where you, where you could have been had you made different decisions, even if you didn't. But it takes a level of humanity, and yes, vulnerability, specifically with yourself, that very, very few people are willing to do. And what is the benefit of all of this? Why would I argue about what it is and what it means to be empathetic? What is the gain? What is the point? It is simply this. That you can genuinely hear people. We talk about what it means to hear and what it means to listen. Empathy, or to empathize with others, does both. If we successfully empathize, we're doing more than hearing people's words, their sobs, maybe their yells, whatever it might be. You're not just taking them into your mind. You stand there with the other person. Now, yes, as I said before, it's a very different circumstance if they also are willing to try to do you harm in the process. I don't believe in tolerating that. But if you can stand that close to them, then you connect with them in a deeper way than most people even understand is possible. And that's it. This is not about taking that forward into some sort of influence or improving people's lives or something like that. It could lead to such things, but that is not what I'm getting at. All of us want to be truly known and truly loved. I do not believe that that is possible without empathy. Now, we cannot guarantee that we will have people in our lives who will do that for us, but we can work towards doing that for others ourselves. And in the process of doing so, if you succeed, I guarantee you that you will understand your own self far better. You might call it a starting point. I think I would call it a sort of starting point. But the sort of thing that that can lead to 
even I can only imagine. So that's all I had to offer today. Until next time.